I'm Chalice Media Group publisher Brad Lyons. Chalice is proud to support inspiring authors like Shonda Jha, who encourage us to discover new ways each of us can change our world every day. Check out our library of social justice and anti-racism titles at chalicemedia.org. Welcome to another episode of Their Wildest Dreams, a podcast about ancestors and activism. I'm your host, Shonda Jaw, author of the book Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. I am thrilled that today's guest is Mickey Scott Bay Jones, who describes herself as the justice doula, a womanist contemplative activist, multi-faith movement chaplain, innovative certified Enneagram teacher and coach, compassionate facilitator, and nonviolence practitioner. I also find Mickey to be an incredibly grounded and incredibly fun and playful and an incredibly insightful movement person. I am so grateful to have her in my life, and I'm so grateful to get to share this episode with you. Another thing to note At the end of each episode, I mention an upcoming summit about ancestors, and Mickey is going to be one of the guest speakers at that summit. So stay tuned till the end of this episode so you can learn more about how to learn more from Mickey and a whole crew of amazing activists with great insight into ancestors. Mickey, thank you so much for joining the show. It is so good to be with you. And I was thinking we met, we met at Wild Goose, what, like six or seven, maybe even longer than that ago, years and years ago. So I don't, yeah, it's been a while. So we met over campfires and in the mud and um, just beyond the KKK uh, (laughs) grounds. So... It is good to see you again. After oh. I mean, we've seen each other many times since then, but it is awfully good to be in your presence. Tell you what, um, I just told folks who you are, but in your own words, who are you in the world and what activism matters to you these days? Oh, who are you in the world is always such an interesting question because it's, you know, who you are in that moment and who you mm-hmm. are, I guess, like over time. So, you know, it feels like I should have just a regular answer, but it also is like, hmm, who am I today? Yes. Um, you know, I can define that, define that in a lot of ways. Um, I'm a Black queer woman um, who lives in the southern U.S. of Turtle Island. Um, and I'm a, a mother that's very, like, present for me right now. Um, but also a really changing weird thing as I have two adult, quote unquote, adult children, (laughs) one that's still at home. And then, um, but you know, that identity is changing as they grow. Um, I'm a motherless daughter and that I lost my mom in the pandemic and early, early, early in the pandemic, uh, March of 2020. Um, Which was a ver- very spe- specific form of loss because it yeah. was that season where you couldn't be physically present. It was yeah. um, there was an awful lot of distance. That was that was a really hard time. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so that, you know, that, I mean, I, I hope we have a chance to talk about that because, you know, that just propelled me into thinking about ancestors in a particular way. Um, yes. and then having to learn how to engage with her now. Um, and, um, I'm a womanist, which I think is a really important part of who I am. Uh, because when I found what womanism was, that was like finding home for me. Mm. Um, and it's something that pulls me back to myself every time I kind of, I have actually have a little definition of womanism on a post-it note beside my bed um, <laughs> so that I can like look at it when, whenever I need. And usually before I go to bed and when I wake up. Um, and um, I'm a sister and a friend and um, I'm someone who deeply cares about the world. Um, uh, I'm a nonviolence practitioner um, and I take that really seriously and I try to live that in lots of different parts of my life and all of my life. Um, and I'm a doula. I've actually, for over a decade, I helped people bring babies in the world, but really now I feel like my, my, vocation is helping people birth whatever it is they're needing to birth into the world um, to do that. And um, I'm a, I'm a perpetual learner, whether that's in my, in my dance. Um, I love to dance. That's how I kind of, that's my healing place and how I survive. But I'm always reading a new book. I'm reading a book on boundaries right now <laughs> because mm. I realize how, how much I need to be working on those. Um <laughs> But yeah, I'm just the kind of person who wants, um, who wants to participate in co-creating a world where we can all thrive. And I've had to double down on that being who I am because I, um, yeah, when, when all of who you are is called into question, you just have to figure that out again for yourself. And I've been on that journey for about the last two years. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I know that there is a lot of activism that you engage. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if there's anything in particular you want to name explicitly. Yeah. I mean, I have done a lot of different things. I think when I, yeah. I, there, I was, I was involved in activism before I knew that's what I was doing. <laughs> yep. Like when I look back yep. at my teenage self, I'm like, Oh, I was in earth club and we like yes. sold t-shirts to raise money for the whales. Yes. You know? Yep. Um, yep. And, and we are then, of a generation. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> it was like, you know, these little t shirt forms and you would sell them to your friends so you could, you know, yep. raise money for the environment. Right. And yep. I can like still picture the designs in my head of these t shirts. Um, and I was in Key Club, you know, like these civic Aww. clubs in school, you know, where yeah. it was like go out and volunteer in the community. But then even when I became a doula and a childbirth educator mm -hmm. and a lactation consultant and literally yep. trying to change the, um, you know, what was available to birthing people in my local area in Nashville, like we were fighting to get birth tubs. We were um, trying to get water mm -hmm. labor and water birth. We were trying to get more midwives and support the midwives that were being pushed out of our local hospitals. I didn't know that was activism. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I didn't know what organizing was. I actually remember yeah. because you know that I have traveled a lot in my um, yes. theological and spiritual understanding of the world. Yes. But I remember when Barack Obama was running the first time and people were making fun of him for being an organizer. I did not know what an mm -hmm. organizer was, mm -hmm. but I was already 
doing activism, but I didn't know. I didn't have the language because I had not been involved in movement community. Yeah. And so, you know, and so then it wasn't until Trayvon Martin was murdered that my life mm -hmm. was changed. And I had an, a, a particular kind of awakening um, around movement and around activism. <clears throat> and at the time I had three small um, biracial, but brown babies. Yep. And I knew looking at Trayvon Martin that he, that my children could be him. Yep. Um, little brown children being raised in a mostly white suburb um, who could yep. uh, be assumed didn't belong there. And that, that yep. changed my life. It woke me up and we all have our awakenings. So I don't think any of us need to be ashamed of when it happens or how it happens. Right. Just thankful that right. it does happen. Yep. And that, you know, that really did awaken me to the understanding of organizing and movement space and our movement histories and um, the legacy that I was a part of as a black person, yep. as a black woman, yep. um, as, as a person born into this society. Um, and so um, since then, I've really gotten involved as, I, I call myself kind of a big sister to the movement because I'm not old enough to be an elder. I'm not young enough to be kind of one of these in the streets, yes. <laughs> you know, activists. Yes. But I do a lot of the support work. Um, I mean, I have yeah. done campaigns, especially a lot of stuff around racial justice and a lot of online yeah. organizing around racial justice, writing and um, kind of bringing people into movement, um, mm -hmm. helping do that kind of awakening thing for other folks. Um, but my sweet spot has really been, how do I help activists, organizers, clergy, um, community leaders actually stay in this work for the long haul? Mm -hmm. How do I help them build sustainable leadership practices? That's where my sweet spot has, has been. And, yeah. um, you know, learning that I don't have to be out front. I don't mind it. I'm good at it. I can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I am also good at kind of the training and the supporting and, you know, some of my mental mentor or one of my mental mentors who is an ancestor is Ella Baker. And yeah. so, and that's what she did. Ella Baker was yep. not as out front as a lot of other people. She right. was the one, you know, supporting the young activists, the activists of yep. all ages, helping them to synthesize, helping them to, um, you know, figure out their place in movement and then do that well. And, yep. and so that's why she's one of my, one of the ancestors that I connect to, because that's, that's how I want to be. That's how I want to operate is actually kind of multiplying myself out versus me needing to do everything. Yes. I love that. It's, it's that Greek word pantocrator, um, that idea of um, being that, supporting encouraging it's a term that's used for well sometimes for jesus and sometimes for the mm. holy spirit but it's this idea of the encourager the the one who's always supporting and nudging and um and affirming um yeah. i think the modern framing might be cheerleader but i like the greek word better <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean and that works for doula too because doulas are coaches. yes so exactly. you know and I can't, I literally can't do the birthing for the person. I just can't. Yeah. But can I be there? Can I be a witness? Can I be yeah. a, an, an accompanier? Yes. yes. And so that to me is my role. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. James Baldwin talked about, um, you know, being an accompanier, basically, you know, that yep. the role of the artist was to be a witness and yeah. to accompany 
right? And yeah. so I don't know if in Baldwin's time he would have been called an activist. I think we look at him now that way. Mm-hmm. But he saw himself as that witness, that um, person accompanying, as he did, many activists. Yeah. And so you don't even have to do what I'm doing to accompany people or to witness people. It's we can find our place in in that and do it. Yep. I think that's absolutely right. So you had mentioned before, you already alluded to this, but tell me a little bit about what got you interested in ancestors and maybe interested mm-hmm. isn't the right word because it's a much more visceral, tangible thing than that. But what was it yeah. that got you connected? I mean, I think, I have always been interested in belonging as an only mm. child. I'm yeah. I'm a I'm an only and a big sister, so I have a little brother who's 21 years younger than me and we've never lived in the same house and we only share one parent. So Yeah. Um so I spent a lot of time playing by myself under the dining room table with imaginary friends and dolls. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and I spent a lot of time out in the neighborhood with uh, with kids at their houses or out in the playground or whatever, right? So yeah. I've always wanted to feel connected. I always, I could walk into my friends' houses and call their moms and dads, mom and dad. And like, I, I just love connection and community and people. Um, and so I think to me, ancestors are an extension of that. Like mm-hmm. you, you didn't, nobody popped up out of nowhere. Like you're not a, what is it? Like an amoeba that can like, self-reproduce <laughs> you know yep. like you came from somewhere and so I've that I've always been interested in that where do you mm-hmm. come from who are your people what is your lineage because it gives you more to belong to essentially yeah um and so that's always been there for me and then as you know getting older that gets more complicated because you learn more about your family mm-hmm. you learn more about the country you live in <laughs> the yeah. part of the country you live in, you know, all these things. And it's like, oh, how am I connected into that? And part of that connection is the people, you know, and you can start to see those people as real complex people. And I think that's where I started to want to know about those people in a real way, not just the like shiny, happy biography of them, but I want to know as, uh, you know, the the complexity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you had mentioned also losing your mother. Um, yeah. Gave you, I, I, it's something that my, my friend Patricia, another guest on this show, um, and I talked a lot about what it meant to metabolize having our fathers as ancestors instead of elders because we both lost our fathers within a couple of years of each other and that was a pretty specific journey um mothers are it's a different loss but yeah i wonder i wonder what that was like for you what that's been like what it continues to be like yeah because i had started coming to terms in the years before my mother died and you know i wasn't expecting it because she died of covid Mm-hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. And so I, and I, and she was perfectly healthy as far as I knew, went to Zumba class in February. I mm-hmm. mean, she had been kind of sick. I mean, just like winded. And so mm-hmm. we didn't know none of us, she hadn't been out of the country, you know, all the questions they were asking at the beginning. So yep. it wasn't as if she was a, um, a sickly older woman that we were 
you know, trying to protect. Um, yeah. And, and she, she got sick and her husband never, I mean, literally never got a touch of it, my stepfather. So it was just wow. a shock. Yeah. He has never been sick at all from COVID one single day since 2020. So, and he's a smoker. My mother was married to two smokers in her lifetime. Oh my <laughs> they gosh. Still fine, alive. And it's like, what wow. is happening? Um, wow. So, you know, it's it's different when you can kind of, when you're kind of expecting it or you have a sickly parent or whatever, right? So, but I had been thinking for the years before that, my mother is aging. What things do I want to say or know? What conversations do I want to have? What things do I want to heal before she dies? Yeah. And then I didn't get to do any of that. So it's like mm-hmm. I had been prepping myself in some ways, but then it just went so fast, which can happen, right? I mean, yeah. people can be gone in an it instant. Um, mm-hmm. But I felt like there were ways our relationship was going to be healed or or like we were going to be able to talk through some things because I was getting mm-hmm. brave enough to start doing those things. And I was, you know, committed to like making more time in my calendar and and then and then she was gone. And it's like now I have to do that work on my own as much as I possibly can. There are things now that I can never know. Um, or at least know in maybe the ways I think I would have known them before had I just been able to ask her. But um, there are other ways of knowing. And so how do I tap into that now? That's really what I'm trying to kind of struggle with and think through. And also not putting pressure on myself to do that too fast. Like right. right, right now, I just like on her birthday, I... I usually have a steak dinner because she loves steak and that's what she had on her last, she, her birthday's yeah. in March. And so she, like, she was actually hospitalized just a few days after her birthday. And so I have a steak dinner and drink some wine like she liked to mm-hmm. do. And I think about her um, and we weren't particularly close. So this is not like my mom was my best friend. It mm-hmm. was, you know, like, <laughs> so I don't want to romanticize it, but it's like, yeah. I at the, I at this stage of connection with her as an ancestor it's for me about just connecting and connecting in ways that feel safe and positive and okay and like if we need to do some other ancestor work at another time then there's time for that I don't have to rush it yep yeah it doesn't all have to happen at once yeah 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 that makes complete sense So let me ask, have you faced any challenges in engaging ancestors? And I think part of the reason I ask that question is, I think a lot of us have different, different areas that are difficult. So for some folks, it's the messaging they've gotten about connecting with ancestors as a form of idolatry, or Mm -hmm. for some people, it's my ancestors were pretty crummy. Um, what do I do with that? Right. For some folks it's, I was ripped from the narrative of my ancestors. What do I do? So I'm wondering, have you faced any challenge? Oops. Are you still there? I just lost you. I don't know if you can hear me because this has happened 
once before. I'm going to go ahead and pause. So I wonder what challenges you may have faced in engaging ancestors. Yeah, so I have um, a complicated ancestry, as many um, Black Americans who are descendants of uh, formerly enslaved people. Uh, and that means a, a mixed um, racial heritage. Um, and I mean, in a super pronounced way, I have the normal stuff of like the mysterious indigenous elder or ancestor that I can't quite track down. I'm really close yep. actually on one side, um, but still working on that. Um, but also fun fact is I'm related to Strom Thurmond. Whoa. Yeah. Like wow. the most racist Dixiecrat Senator yep. from South Carolina. Yep. That's, <clears throat> yeah, I'm a Thurman on my mother's mother's side. Um, and we used to have family reunions. I have now. I have all the documentation. I'm really the only on my mother's side. It's only me and my uncle left. So I was the only child of that family. Mm-hmm. So I have all of the materials. And I've now been to South Carolina and done a little tiny bit of uh, work in the archives there. Um, and I have a cousin who's in her 80s who's doing some of that work. But, you know, she's a cousin. We don't share all the same relatives. But she's also a Thurman. So it's, you know, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm yes. not trying to knock. I, like, I'm not trying to knock on that ancestor door. Right. Um, right. Right. And and I had a lot of big feelings about it at first. And honestly, for me, I didn't want to kind of get it wrong. You know, it's like. Yeah you don't want to awaken all of these ancestors, do you? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we can get nervous about that and be like, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't know. I think we get it mixed up with like Ouija boards and like right. stories about stories and movies about ghosts or, or mm-hmm. spirits or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I had, I've, I've had some conversations with friends and with um, people that I really trust. So. Um, uh, Emmanuel Brown and Amy Babish, two amazing healing practitioners um, that I count as as friends and collaborators, um, have really helped me think through this. Um, Emmanuel has a much more formal practice um, around his relationship with his ancestors. Um, and Amy does a lot of kind of leading people in that connection with ancestors. And they're two very different pr- people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I think that I've learned from both of them is that you're in charge. You are the person with the body. You're in this physical realm and you can have boundaries with your ancestors. This is not a free for all. Yes. Everybody just doesn't get to come out and play and come out and direct your life and come out and th- no, no, you get to invite particular people. You get to focus on the, on, um, I think the way Amy talks about it is bright and benevolent ancestors. Like you get to figure that out. And if somebody can't behave, you can like tell them to sit down for a bit. Yep. And so that's been helpful that it's like, I don't have to just (laughs) accept everyone. Yes. Um, and it's not all or nothing. You know, I, I don't really have a formal practice. I don't put food on my altar. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really 
And I do have an altar um, and my mother's picture is on it. In fact, her urn is on it. Um, we split her ashes, my um, stepfather and I. I don't know if that's the right protocol. I'm sure somebody would tell me that I'm doing something terrible and wrong for having that there. But uh, I didn't want her in my bedroom because I was like, you know, I'm doing things in there. My mama don't need to be in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hear you. So um, I have, you know, candles and and incense and and crystals and things that are meaningful to me. And I just, it's a place of grounding for me, you know, but I don't know all the things that a lot of people mm -hmm. swear you have to, to do. Um, right. But knowing this piece around me being the one with the physical body who gets to control this and have yep. some, I get to have boundaries like I would have with any physical being. Yep. And that has been really um, helpful for me in, in continuing to engage versus like feeling like I have to leave it alone until I can do everything perfectly. Right. You know, it's interesting because I think in the book I have rituals, I have, you know, suggestions of how to, uh, how to engage in more formalized ways. But for me, much of it is, it's conversation, right? It's, uh, it's a lot of sharing and a lot of listening. Um, and maybe some imagining. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of it informed by who I understood them to be, right? Um, and I also find myself thinking about and this is something I keep coming back to. You know, I think it came, I think it all actually started with, um, I took a class when I was in grad school on Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, <laughs> he was a prominent theologian in the 1950s and 60s, um, cared a great deal about social justice, was really active in labor uh, justice and racial justice but believed in this kind of theological realism that eventually led him down the road to supporting the Vietnam war because he oh, saw communism as such a big threat. Right. So I see him as a cautionary tale, right. For what it means to pride oneself in one's realism. So I take this class class on Reinhold neighbor and the professor who was also had been, who had, been a part of Dr. King's Chicago campaign, who was really involved in uh, a lot of racial justice work and loved Reinhold Niebuhr, knew what was wrong with him, knew what was problematic and loved him. And so whenever one of us would ask a question like, hey, do you feel like Reinhold Niebuhr was kind of blaming the victim a little bit in this section? And he's like, no, he absolutely was. I believe if he were alive today, he would be a stronger feminist. And somebody else asked a question about like his really high Christology. And Professor Gamwell said, yeah. And, you know, I believe if he were alive today, he'd actually be a, a process theologian because mm. Chris Gamwell was a process theologian. <laughs> and so I found myself thinking... I feel like in Dr. Gamwell's mind, there's a different version of Reinhold Niebuhr who has been able to continue to evolve beyond yeah. the grave. And yeah. I found it hilarious at the time, but I think in some ways it kind of got under my skin and I started thinking, 
I wonder if there are some of our ancestors who get to keep evolving. Like I think about people in my own heritage who got things very wrong because they were functioning out of social norms in ways that caused a great deal of harm. And I find myself thinking, I wonder if that ancestor has gotten a chance to realize what the other options actually were. I wonder if that ancestor maybe has had a chance to repent, to turn around, to heal, to be a better ancestor than they were uh, in this life. Yeah. On this planet. I mean, and I have heard that, that it's, you know, the interactions we have um, in a spiritual way with our ancestors actually is part of that work, allows them to kind of heal and evolve. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with IFS with internal family systems, but Mm. I've done some of that work Mm -hmm. um, and I've done some training in it, but in somatic IFS, but in the work that I've uh, done with my coach, Amy, she brings in kind of this IFS piece. And for some people, there's some, some healing with ancestors needs to happen. That is about like your parts, right? Because internal family systems, even though it's called that, is not about your family per se. It's about the parts inside you, you know. So sometimes those parts are described as kind of like a table where all of the different parts of you are kind of sitting, and you get to engage the different parts of you: the the protector, the the child, the yeah. And I love that visual image for it. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, this little scared part of you or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's like, there are these ancestors, there's like, the land that you that your family came mm. from, or these messages, or, you know, it may not be a particular person, you may not be able to mm-hmm. nail it down that way. But it's like this mm-hmm. idea of the people you come from. And that has been really powerful to kind of see that work in action. Because um, I've done it in a group setting. And it's like, that allows you to heal your family line mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense to you or and may not make sense, you know, it, totally, but it makes sense to mm-hmm. your body. It makes yeah. sense to these parts inside of you. And, yeah. and maybe it does something on some sort of mystical plane. Uh, who knows? But if it allows right. you to live more fully, yep. that's the whole point of all of this. Yep. Exactly. I love that. So this kind of connects to the next question I'd wanted to ask, which is what gifts have you experienced as you engage ancestors? Hmm. Um, I feel like you've already been talking about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, almost um, in the same hand, I was going to say like conversely, but it's, it's, it's just another part of it is that Sometimes it's maybe not even about healing or healing the ancestors or them evolving, but it's, it's like reiterating that people are people, no matter how great the ancestor Mm -hmm. is like, um, because I think we can really, uh, idolize, really kind of memorialize people in one place. You know, people are always so much better when they're dead. Um, and so it's like, (laughs) it's it's easy for us to be like, um, to just remember all the good, good parts about them. And especially if it's someone we didn't know, right? Like my two, my two mental, like my two biggest mental mentors are Ella Baker, like I said, and Fannie Lou Hamer. And I didn't know either of those Mm -hmm. two women. Um, so it's really easy for me to see them as perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, truthfully, I haven't really read anything bad about either one, but you know, they're I'm right. sure they had right. attitude problems from time to time. Right. Um, right. But it allows me um, with both of both those kinds of people that I didn't know and people that I did know or have stories, family stories from to kind of let them be fully human. The gift of that is that I get to be fully human. Like I get to look at their flaws or the quirks they had or some of the shitty things they did and be like, oh, I also do shitty things. Which doesn't right. make me a fully fully shitty person. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, exactly. Will, will people be able to look at the sum of my life and see goodness? Um, I think I think this, uh, I mean, coming back to Baldwin, even Audre Lorde, like, people will very much pet, put those two on a pedestal. And if you, re- if you read enough about Audre Lorde, she wasn't, <laughs> like, she had some <laughs> issues. Sure. Like, yes, black feminist warrior poet, but lesbian poet. She was, you know, she also had some issues with friendships. Baldwin was cranky and difficult to be friends with. Like, I mean, and that's okay. Like, people, especially in movement space, like, can people be people? Yeah. And so it's helpful for me to, like, see the fullness of who they are that has been a gift to me and to allow me not to feel like I have to be so flawless so perfect so always on top of everything and I'm allowed to have emotions I'm allowed to make mistakes um I mean to me reading about the real relationships that these people had or hearing those stories that's why I like to retell those stories sometimes because or or talk about it in conversation because I'm like Y'all, these these are real these were real people and yep. we need to learn from their real lives, not just the, you know, the quotable version of them that we have mm-hmm. immortalized. Yep, I think that's absolutely right. And it's interesting because one of the the next question I was gonna ask you was uh how are the conversations you've been having with ancestors equipping you for the work of justice? But I feel mm-hmm. like what we're already tipping into is when we engage our ancestors in their complexity, instead of just reifying, deifying, or demon on the flip side, demonizing. Yeah. Um, it gives us a little bit of space to bring some grace into yeah. the movement, which That's right. I, I'm part of a network right now, a part of a cohort right now. Uh, that's, the fierce vulnerability network and yeah 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 i thought i thought you they were on your radar um so we've got a bay area cohort that's going right now and i'm in it and they're really committed to that intersection of racial justice particularly through reparations um eco justice and nonviolent direct action and a big part of what we've been talking about is how do we do conflict well within movement spaces and I find myself very aware of the fact that we haven't built the muscle of, well, we haven't built the muscle of both and, but we haven't built the muscle of holding the fullness of each other in the midst of tension. And I think part of it's because a lot of our movement spaces aren't actually community. Yeah. Um, And I think when we're in ongoing community, we have to figure out what it means to show up with each other 
in the midst of real tensions, in the midst of disagreements, in the midst of harm. Um, And I don't think we're, I don't think we always do that well. And I think that's not just now, although it feels very present now. It's been true, you know, throughout the movement. I'm, you know, at least through the 60s and beyond, right? So, so I find myself wondering if, uh, you know, as you've been sharing about what it means to engage our ancestors in their complexity, it feels like that has something to offer um, yeah. movement work today. But I wonder if there, are, if that, if you want to talk more about that, or if there are other ways that engaging your ancestors has been equipping you for your justice work. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I usually speak from my iPad, if you know, in person, not so much nowadays with you know doing a lot of stuff on Zoom or whatever. But right. the picture that I have on my um, as like my background is a picture of Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker. And particularly the reason it's those two women is in, and in that together is to me, they represent kind of two sides of me and my family. Um, Ella Baker was an educator and highly and pretty highly educated herself. Um, and a quiet woman, uh, you know, again, more in the background, Fannie Lou Hamer was a brilliant speaker and preacher was loud, was, um, you know, kind of uh, had this rebellious streak in her, like um, suffered a whole lot of hardship, but could not be kept down, you know? Yep. And so like keeping and, and, you know, little education, all that stuff. So like keeping those two together for me helps me keep my commitments to that. Like I am a third generation college educated on one side of my family um, actually from a couple of different branches. So I, I was pretty firmly middle-class. Um, mm-hmm. you could argue about where my class is now, but I, I was pretty firmly middle-class and like, um, I, there's a lot of privilege in my life. Um, and I also come from uh, more science temple, Muslim people. So people, black mm-hmm. folks who decided to have kind of a marginalized, religion and, and understanding of the world. And then also poor, very poor South Carolina and Alabama black folks. Like I have, yeah. I have all of that. And so I want to have a, every time I speak, I want to speak with a commitment to holding all of those people yeah. um, in the work that I do. Like, I'm not going to leave any of that behind. That's, that's my goal is that I, all of that would come with me. All of that would be, welcome um and that i would be whatever work i'm doing would honor um and make the world better for all all of that lineage right mm-hmm. so that's like a way like it's not just about me communicating with my ancestors and like asking direction or like getting guidance from their lives or their stories i also it's like a feedback loop like an echo i want to be honoring them and bringing them forward with me um, so I, I think that's what it's about for me. It's like, it's essentially like reminding me of who I am. Yeah. Um, and, and where my, where my loyalties lie, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. um, that's, that, that's what it's about for me. And, um, and, and even, uh, like I think about Rosemary Freeney Harding a lot, right? Like I see myself, my work is in, is in, the lineage of her work. Um, 
with uh, the Mennonite House in Atlanta, the Spirit and Struggle mm. retreats that she and, and Vincent Harding did. Um, yeah. And I've talked to Rachel Harding about this a lot because that's, you know, if, if anything, I want people to be able to look at my work and point back to to the Harding's work, mm-hmm. um, to creating those creating spaces where people can sit around a table and process what they've been through where people can feel like they've been listened to, where they can get replenished, where, you know, like that's what's important to me. And this work can feel so small because in movement space, what do we reward? We reward the person with the megaphone and that got the million dollar grant and all those things. Um, and, and that's great. I don't have any problem with that, Yeah, but I don't, that's, that's not prime, my primary lane. And so I have to be reminded that that, that, that matters, you know, like, and that I, I found these people and, you know, like maybe someone will find something I've done 20 years from now and it will inspire them to do something else. And it's okay that, that what it is is today is I have a coaching session with one, you know, faith rooted justice organizer that is on the edge (laughs) or one black, black queer organizer who, is uh already burned out and done like that's that's enough because it's the legacy of other people who did that exact same work yep absolutely absolutely so one of the questions and you had said you don't have any formal practices or rituals connected to how you engage ancestors but you also said you do um you do some somatic work and it feels to me like there might be some uh, connections there. There might be some actual, yeah, formal practices uh, around engaging ancestors. I wonder if there are uh, any connections there that you can think of. Um, I think the somatics is basically about being grounded in our bodies in and deeper relationship with our bodies. Right. And listening to the wisdom of them. Right. Um, So I think, that what I then do in my body is based off of um, some of the stories I know. So for me, the like probably the main practice is is finding out these stories. Like I do, a, a, you know, like doing reading about um, some of these people. Not my ans- my like blood ancestors. Those, you know, I I think going through pictures, like whatever little stories I can gather, um, trying to to find those out. Um, because in some, I actually, my grandfather on my father's side, my father's father is 96. Um, and yeah, my oldest living relative, the last of his generation, the last of 10 children. Um, and so a few months ago, I literally recorded him for like three hours telling stories. Oh, that's great. It was a huge gift. And anytime yeah. I can be with him, I go and I sit with him and I record him. Because um, I'm trying to get his stories because uh, he's his his mind is impeccable still. I mean, the man remembers everything about his life. Um, <clears throat> so that kind of story gathering um, mm-hmm. and listening. So with people I didn't know, like Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, I I read about them. Yeah. And then I think it's with in both instances, it's the retelling of those stories um, yep. that has kind of that's become a very strong practice for me. So I. Um, there's a story, um, there's a story that my grandfather tells that I really, really love um, about kind of the ingenuity of Black folks. Um, and one of my favorite stories about 
um, Fannie Lou Hamer is she talked about how the white people she worked for when they were gone, that she would take a bath in their bathtub (laughs) and just like enjoy herself. You know, she would eat in the kitchen before she would Mm -hmm. feed them. They didn't know how long it took to make dinner. So she would just eat and feel good. You know, um, we, she would change the scales, um, for the sharecroppers. So they would get paid properly because of course, they got the, undercounted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They got mm-hmm. undercounted, so she fixed it. Yeah. She was the only, she was the only one who could do that math. Yes. <clears throat> so, you know, it's like, was she tearing down, uh, apartheid in, in the Southern U S single-handedly by herself? No, <laughs> but right. She was taking a bath and feeding herself so that she could live another day to do what she needed to do. Yep. And that is brilliant to me. Yep. Um, you yep. know, my grandfather figuring out a way to to drive his liquor truck through the hood by, oops, dropping a box every time so the brothers in the hood could get a little, little for themselves. Yeah. Because the white man who drove before him could not make it through that neighborhood. Because all you needed to do was form an alliance with the guys. In the yep. That's all you needed yep. to do was, yep. was figure out the little thing that the people needed. It's like, look, this is, this is the 10% neighborhood tax. This is what right. it is. Right. And he learned it from the white guys in the actual warehouse that were breaking it for themselves. So he took that information from the white yeah. folks in the warehouse, used it to get through this neighborhood. And I was just like, Grandpa, you're so brilliant. I like mm-hmm. what? And the company didn't care. It was a lost box. They get to write it off. Right. Right. So then he is one of the only black men driving a truck for this company because they thought black people couldn't do it. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's just learning those little stories of small resistance, what we would call small. Yeah. That is like, you know, that was the, the, like the liquor truck thing was huge for my grandfather. He provided yep. for his family. He was, you know, able to have a job that the company told them that he couldn't have. Mm-hmm. He made a way out of no way, yeah. the way Fannie Lou Hamer made a way out of no way for herself. Mm-hmm. And then when she could, did it for more people by fixing the yep. scales. Yep. Like it, it, those things matter too. Yeah. And and for me that's about the Fannie Lou Hamer story in particular about the the bathtub and the food is like I get to have pleasure as mm-hmm. part of this work. Like literally a thing I get to do, I should do, I'm allowed to do. Yep. And me taking a bath is not going to like keep the patriarchy in place more than it already is. <laughs> right. Right. It's right. not like going to single-handedly prevent white supremacy from being dismantled so i might as well take a bath yes you know yes so absolutely if i can share a little bit off the top with my homies then that's okay like those kinds of things because i think almost uh in progressive circles on on or on the left we can be so purist so high-minded yep that it's like are we we, do we get to live while we do this right right we get to enjoy right. ourselves and have some pleasure because that's that is part of dismantling the system because the system yeah. tells us we don't get to have any pleasure we have to work we have yep. to kill ourselves over all of this yep and absolutely not when i look at my ancestors i mean my grandfather is an elder because he's still alive but when i look mm-hmm. at 
my ancestors and elders and I get some of these little stories. Yep. I mean, Remnants is also full of this. Um, uh, Rosemary Freeney Harding and Rachel Harding's book as well. Ways of finding that pleasure and connection and joy and little ways of subverting the systems that tell us how things should be. Those are the lessons that like help me get through day to day. We have tons of books and experts and trainings Mm -hmm. on how to make the big pieces happen. Yeah. But we need to be tapping into how to keep ourselves alive on the daily, how to keep our communities connected. And that's hearing those little stories and then sharing those. So we are passing those down. Yep. I think that's like, that needs to become more of an important thing alongside of these big trainings, because those are, that kind of stuff is not talked about in our kind of organizing training circles. Right. No, I completely agree. I, yeah, my newsletter is called Joy in Justice because we we have this notion of you do the justice because it's the right thing to do, but it actually is a chance to practice experiencing the beloved community that we're trying to create, right? To get yeah. those tastes of beauty, those tastes of heaven, those tastes of joy and delight. So, yeah. and that was actually going to be my last question was, uh, how are the ancestors helping you connect with joy? But I feel like we've already mm. talked about that. Are yeah. there any other ways you can think of? Um, I mean, I think I do try and think about, um, particularly with my like ancestors, my blood ancestors, um, or family ancestors. Um, again, not having like a super close-knit family in a lot of ways trying to remember the things they loved um and that they enjoyed and the times that they were happiest when it when they weren't being cranky (laughs) or whatever you know (laughs) like and and finding some finding my own joy sometimes it's something similar and sometimes it's something Mm -hmm. something different um but a few months after my well, no, it's probably a year after my mother died. Um, I really wanted her good housekeeping cookbook. Now, my mother did was not a good cook and did not particularly <laughs> like to cook. Yeah, but she learned to make my grandmother's um, peach turnovers, and that was like a big deal to her. Yeah, and I just knew I needed to have that cookbook. Um, yeah. and I needed to see those pages and it's like taped together with masking tape. <laughs> um, yes. it's not, you know, it's an old red and white, good housekeeping cookbook. Yep. Um, but I, I just needed to have it. Yeah. There was something about that. It, even though my memory of my mother is not like, Oh, she was in the kitchen all the time. And she's a great cook. Um, mm. my grandmother was a really good cook her mother. So there was something about it that I needed to have. And I don't know that I even fully know that yet, but I just, Mm -hmm. I just needed it in my space. And so I got it. (laughs) I asked my stepfather for it. 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 And so those like little things of, um, you know, memory and like actually keeping those little joyous things with me on my desk, which I'm sitting at right now. I have a picture of me and my mom. 
And I also have a picture of my grandfather, her, her father, because he was yeah. really the person who loved me really well on that side of the family. Um, I was his baby, uh, his pumpkin is what he called me. And so um, I found this picture of him reading a book, sitting on a porch somewhere. I don't know anything about the picture, but it just, it kind of embodies the gentleness with which he handled me. And um, so I just, I, I like to look at that picture and remember um that gift that he gave me of gentleness and it helps me remember to be gentle with myself. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. um, I, 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 yeah, I think that's it. Like try, I, I am in a state right now. There may be a time when I try and like process some of the like things we didn't get to work out, you know, when I was alive, sure. when they were alive, but like sure. right now I'm pretty tapped into the the things that they did well, the places where yeah. I felt loved and felt cared for. And that feels like it's a good place to sit for a while. You know, yeah. those that's that feels like a gift to realize Absolutely. these these imperfect people who were dealing with their own things, their own demons. Um mm-hmm. You know, like there's so much my grandfather didn't tell me about being a Tuskegee crew chief. And like, he could have told me these amazing stories and he didn't tell me any of them. I didn't know till reading his diaries, he had been in Morocco and Italy wow. and all these things. Right. Right. I knew he had been in, in the war, but I didn't know anything else. And it's like, why didn't you tell me these things? But, you know, they were other, he gave me other things. He gave me like hugs and doted on me in ways that have helped me, you know, love myself. So yeah, I'm just trying to like keep those gifts tucked away in my heart right now, because it feels real hard to live in yep. in this world right now. <laughs> so that is no joke. Like, I need to just look at my grandpa and be like, he loved me and yes. I still get to keep that love with me. Any words of advice for listeners as they're thinking about engaging ancestors before we wrap? Yeah. I mean, I would just say it's like, it's not a big deal. (laughs) Like just connect how you want to connect. Remember people, how you want to remember them. Like, yeah, you can, it's good to have little guides or whatever about like setting up your altar, but I just also like, don't stress out about it. Like, you know, just if you like it and it feels good, um, you know, I, I just, I feel like that's the most important thing. Right. I, and cause mine is like somebody who's really, really into it would probably look at my altar and be like, girl, what are these things on your altar? <laughs> <laughs> You got a red candle. You're not supposed to have that out till da 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 da. Like you got right, a yellow right. candle. I don't care. I like it. It works for me. Uh, it feels good, and it's better than nothing for me right now. Yep. And I think that's um, the most important thing. Be gentle with yourself. Remember, you're in charge, and you have the physical body. You can have boundaries, and. I think that's a really good start. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Mickey. Yes. 
sounds great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you found inspiration in this episode for deepening your own connections with ancestors. This has been Shonda Ja. If you haven't had a chance to read my book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, you can find it at Chalice Media Group or by ordering from your favorite local bookstore. Thanks to Matt DiStefano for his fantastic editing skills and to Chalice Media Group for supporting the show. If you don't already have May 11th through 13th in your calendar for the virtual summit on ancestors and activism, what are you waiting for? You can find out more at shondajaw.com. Here's hoping that you find ways to be some of your ancestors' wildest dreams and that you find ways to repair the harm of other ancestors at the same time.